0: The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals. This content is not intended to malign or disparage any organization, group, or individual. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter, currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles. Previously, I was a prosecutor with the LA District Attorney's Office for close to a decade. We're recording this on Monday, October 18th, 2021. We get questions every week from you, the listeners and viewers, about legal and criminal justice topics. So this week we're going to address your comments. It's time to approach the bench and ask a lawyer. And we're joined by Eric Sadal, a career prosecutor with the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, who is also cross-designated as a federal prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Welcome, Eric. Good afternoon. Eric Sadal is also vice president of the association of Los Angeles deputy district attorneys, the collective bargaining agent representing nearly 1000 deputy district attorneys who work for the county of Los Angeles, Eric, kick us off and tell us a little bit
1: about the ADDA and its mission. Okay. Well, the ADDA represents the line prosecutors in the Los Angeles County district attorney's office. We're the largest uh, local prosecutorial agency in the country, probably in the world. We handle all the felonies uh, and some of the misdemeanors uh, that have to do with, uh, with state law uh, in Los Angeles County. As you know, L.A. is about 10 million people. It's larger than about 40 states. So we have everything from you know petty theft to uh, to multiple murders that we handle
0: and that's something that i don't think a lot of folks <laughs> really appreciate and i remember they them drilling that into us when i was in the office is that how huge this prosecutor's office is really that it handles hundreds and thousands of cases because the the county of los angeles as you say is just so
1: large right and also la you know historically has been a pretty violent area and has always had a has had a gang problem so we get we have a lot of very serious and violent felonies that occur in los angeles yeah
0: and as we're going to get into later you're dealing with such a diverse group of folks too i mean with such a large county you're going to have areas of very high crime areas that don't have uh, those kind of concerns and so i'm sure uh, running an agency that large is, is difficult. Um, Eric, one of the questions that we get uh, with this show often is why does it seem like we're mostly interviewing defense attorneys? And so I'm glad to have you on uh, to talk about that because why are active prosecutors sometimes reluctant to be interviewed?
1: I think there's a, a multiple of uh, multiple reasons. First of all, prosecutors shouldn't be on camera talking about cases that they're currently prosecuting. Um, you don't want to influence jurors uh, using the media for your for your own uh, cases. So very rarely will you see a prosecutor because of their ethical duties. They won't be talking um, about cases. Um, also, a lot of prosecutors, uh, I think certain prosecutors feel uncomfortable talking about it because they think that uh, their office management won't appreciate them talking to the media. Um, you know, I'm in a very different position because as the representative for the Association of Deputy District Attorneys, it gives me a little more freedom to be able to talk to the media. Uh, but what's interesting in terms of line prosecutors is our legal policy manual, since uh, Steve Cooley was elected DA, has been uh, promoting transparency within the office. So, the 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 uh, the legal policy actually says that we're supposed to be open with the media, but when it comes down to actual practice, a lot of prosecutors are worried about what their bosses will think if they actually. Um, Get it? You know, start speaking to the media. Absolutely, and I and I can speak a little more freely about that. No
0: longer being in the office, they they, they scared us to death. I mean, the idea was that you're going to open your mouth and something very stupid's going to fall out, and somehow that's going to ruin your career. And you make a good point because a lot of all of this kind of criminal justice reform that we're hearing about has to do with transparency and wanting to know more about the inner workings of the criminal justice system, that it isn't such a cloistered environment. Um, And you, 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 you want to encourage that. And then at the same time, like you said, you've got these line deputies who are worried to death that somehow this is going to affect their career.
1: You know, and I think that's that's a real important point. I think so much of the of the uh, media has been focused on what defense attorneys have to say about the criminal justice system, rather than what prosecutors have to say. And as a result, we've been kind of getting not to say that you all are biased, but we've been getting a very anti-prosecutorial angle as to what our mission is. And Really, if you think about what the mission of a prosecutor is, it's to do justice. It's to uh, do justice first and then protect the community while while doing justice. So uh, pro- I think prosec- it's a you know, it it, uh, it skews the debate by not having people on the prosecution side advocating and talking about what we do uh, to make sure that you're safe and you're safe while we're
0: being ethical as well. Okay, well, here's your opportunity to set some of the record straight on that. Okay, switching gears completely for a moment. Let's talk about a case that has been really um, capturing the attention of the entire nation over the last couple of months, and that is the disappearance of Gabby Petito. For everybody who might not uh, have been following this case, this is regarding a 22-year-old woman whose parents reported her missing in early September. Prior to her disappearance, she had been on a road trip across the U.S. with her fiancé, Brian Laundry. Laundry returned to the Pairs, Florida home in early September without Petito and reportedly refused to talk to authorities. In late September, Petito's body was found discovered in Wyoming, and earlier this month, the coroner determined that she had died by strangulation. Currently, local and federal authorities have been searching for laundry in a 25,000 acre Florida nature reserve. Now, this is where things get interesting, Eric, and why I kind of want your, your insights on this, because this case uh, um, created an environment that we don't see all the time, because Petito and Laundry had been documenting their trip on Facebook and Instagram, um, largely because, because of this, we saw what has now become referred to as this crowdsourcing of investigation um, from folks following the case and trying to assist law enforcement. And this culminated actually in a YouTube video that was posted by a couple of tourists who happened to have caught uh, Ms. Petito on, on their video. And that video is credited with helping uh, police having located their body. First of all, have you ever experienced anything like this uh, in in the cases that you handled and then just what generally are your thoughts on social media playing a role in criminal investigations?
1: Well, I think one of the great things that's been happening in terms of why, you know, an advantage that law enforcement starting to have is the use of uh, the widespread use of video. Um, and it inadvertently helps our cases by documenting certain moments in time. So, yeah, I, in fact, I have one case right now that I'm not really allowed to talk too much about, but where that type of social media and posting things, uh, posting videos actually helped quite a bit in terms of breaking the case and, and eventually uh, bringing the, uh, suspects to, to justice um, so it's it's a very important useful tools like we have all these mobile um you know cameras running around in terms of, because people are constantly filming and documenting everything so it's 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 quite it's quite helpful
0: what about kind of the the con side of it i imagine in a high pro and maybe you have some experience with this as well but in a high profile case like this where you've got the public interested across the nation, people all over Twitter, Instagram, everything else. What about the, the overflow of information, the, uh, the, the amount of uh, uh, phone calls and tips and sightings I'm sure that law enforcement has been fielding has taken some time away from
1: their actual investigation? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the flip side, right? If there's too much information, if there's information overload, overload, the uh, law enforcement just cannot keep up with it, and it will inundate people so that they can't, you know, ferret out the good stuff and the bad stuff. So there, there is there is a lot of there is some downside to that.
0: Yeah, I, I found this interest um, to be fascinating as well because I, it, you know, we're living in an age where. Podcasts, for instance, are, 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 are taking over and these true crime podcasts are something that are fascinating to folks and even a podcast that will follow one case in particular. And we've seen that even in this case, that I- entire episodes are being uh, dedicated towards conspiracy theories and, and amateur sleuthing to try to figure out uh, what happened and where people are. And I'm I'm sure that, like you say, for the most part. It's helpful. I hope it is. I, I just uh, I, I wonder for the boots on the ground type of law enforcement people involved, how much are they finding it to be helpful, and how much are they finding it uh, to be a distraction?
1: Look, I, I think in general the again, the, I think the collection of evidence, the videos, all of that type of stuff does help a lot. Um, you know, I think there's sometimes some frustration when you have someone doing a podcast that really does is not trained about something or does not really know the details of of a case. And they're you know telling their story of that case. Uh, sometimes that could be a little frustrating. I mean, I've, I've seen a podcast, you know, discuss a murder case. And then when you actually look at what the court of appeal decision is, that documents the what the, what actually came out in trial you see something remarkably different from what was done in the podcast and yet the podcast probably has you know a million people listening to it and the court of appeal decision was probably read by you know maybe maybe you and a couple 100. other people <laughs> right so it's you know it does it does get a little frustrating when you see that a podcast becomes the authority of of, uh, or the narrative of what happened. And really that's not what happened and it's more just the, um, you know, an agenda is trying to be pushed through. Right, a story that took on a life of its own. Right. Yeah,
0: okay, Uh, another kind of switch of gears here and this is a case that folks have been interested in and we've gotten some questions about is Sirhan Sirhan Uh, This is the man that was convicted of assassinating Senator Robert F. Kennedy, brother of John Kennedy, in 1968, and he was recommended for parole recently in August of this year. After 53 years in prison, the 77-year-old inmate's fate is now in the hands of the California governor. Uh, I'll just say, what are are your thoughts on this to begin with?
1: Well, I mean, Robert Kennedy has always been a... Is, was a political hero of mine or is a political hero of mine. In fact, I have his picture, um, above my desk, uh, at home. So, uh, that's, it's a, it, to me, uh, Saron Suran's murder of Ken, uh, Robert Kennedy really kind of changed the course of American history. And I think there's certain types of cases where people should never be released, uh, from prison, uh, Obviously, murder cases, certain types of murder cases. But this case in particular was it really did change the course of American history. And if we're going to allow someone to get paroled who murdered a leading candidate for the United States presidency, that's sets a pretty bad precedent. I mean, I think you know, if you remember, Kennedy was shot the night he won the California primary. Um, and this was a big comeback. Uh, for him. So it was, it was a pretty startling moment. Um, it happened soon after the, uh, the, the murder of Martin Luther King. Um, uh, it really, it, it was a, it was a tremendous moment in American history. Sure. And I think the man deserves to be released yeah. uh, for that, especially since he actually hasn't really admitted, uh, full culpability for what he's done yeah
0: you know it's a it's a really interesting topic i've talked with with some colleagues about it It, because on one hand there is the idea of parole right i mean that he 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 gets a hearing and we don't want these things to become just rote and a rubber stamp to not releasing someone but at the other time i think you make a very good point in that not you know some of the criminal justice system is about that particular person and the crime that they committed and some of it is also about sending a message as to what we will and will not tolerate as a society and like you said of of all of the people that we should be sending a message that we will protect and not tolerate any violence against it would be public servants right those who are deciding to sacrifice other things in their lives to make them available to try to make our country a better place and I think Robert Kennedy embodied every single one of those things and so to say that that can somehow one day become forgivable and I, I believe we are making that message when we say we're going to release you back to be amongst all of us um, it, it's certainly not just about mr. Sirhan individually but also about the message that that crime sends uh to the rest of our state and the rest of the country
1: yeah if one i mean think about this one individual went in, killed uh senator kennedy when he was running for president changed the course of american history and we're supposed to say okay well you know i guess we're moving on Uh, i mean what type of message does that send what type of protection does that give our uh, you know our public servants the people who put themselves in harm's way Uh, for uh, for the rest of us. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, And I I don't think it's something with simple uh, answers. um, But I I think this case, if if the governor does go ahead and decide to I mean, that's what we're still waiting on is his signature, correct? If he does decide to go ahead and sign that I think it will be something that we will uh, not just in California, but across the country be talking about for some time. Yeah, he,
1: he the, uh, Governor Newsom can block it. Really, the power is now in his hands to make sure that things are, that excesses that have happened with the parole board are are checked. And you know, Governor Brown, uh, the, our previous governor, uh, on on many occasions actually had to go and check the parole board because of their recommendations for um, for release. And so let's hope that. Governor Newsom does the same thing that Governor Brown has done in the past.
0: I, t- just to clarify that, you're saying that Brown actually turned down some of these recommendations.
1: Right. He, uh, he actually vetoed some of the parole board's previous uh, uh, recommendations for, for parole. I think the, the the other thing that's kind of interesting about this particular, uh, particular moment in terms of Sirhan Sirhan, Is this was the first time that the district attorney's office didn't send a representative up to the parole board to argue against his release um, because of some new changes because of the of the uh, newly elected DA. I guess he's not that newly elected, but um, it was actually the first time the L.A. County D.A. did not send someone up and advocate to keep Sirhan Sirhan in custody. Why would that be a role that the DA would take on? Well, uh, because the DA is the only person in the room that is supposed to be out there um, advocating for public safety. I mean, the parole board is supposed to take some of that role. But uh, during a parole hearing, only, there's only three groups of people, really, that get the full file on the inmate who's looking to be par- paroled. One is the parole board. Two is the defense lawyer uh, representing the inmate who's about to uh, or is petitioning to be released. And the third is the district attorney, the prosecutor that handled the case or the prosecutorial agency who handled the case. So unless you have that full file, you can't really argue uh, whether someone should be should remain or stay within uh, the prison system. One of the things that's supposed to happen uh, with parole hearings is the person supposed to take an accounting of what they've done. Because the idea is you're really not rehabilitated. You're really not out there willing to. You're not going to come out to society in in a in a healthy fashion unless you recognize what got you there in the first place. And one of the important roles that the prosecutor plays in these parole hearings is to make sure that that person is accountable, and is held accountable for what they've done in the past, and make sure that that person's not trying to minimize their participation in, uh, in the crime that they're in, in for. And none of
0: that was able to take place because Mr. Gascon didn't send a representative.
1: Right, uh, Gascogne, uh has this view that prosecutors don't really uh, have a role, uh, it is a view not shared by uh, other district attorney's offices. It's not a view that's shared by the penal code, uh, but it is his own political view. Okay. And we're, we're going to get
0: into more on Mr. Gascone later, but a, a couple of other questions I wanted to discuss with you beforehand. Uh, something that has been um, kind of a, a hot topic over the last year or so has been the idea of uh, bail reform. Uh, last November, uh, California v- voters uh, defeated a bill that would have ended cash bail in favor of risk assessment. And I'm mean, going to w- want you to kind of explain that for us, but let me give a little bit more of the background. Uh, first of all, the, politi- the politician leading the charge on this is Democratic Senator, uh, State Senator Bob Hertzberg. Um, and he's been quoted as saying that the current bail system keeps Californians locked up who pose no threat to the public and who have been convicted of no crime simply because they cannot pay what the bail industry demands." Okay. I'm going to leave that quote kind of out there. And please give us your thoughts. Is that accurate? Is that true? Is
1: it as simple as he states it to be? So bail is not as simple as the bail proponents on either side would like it to make it sound. First, in Los Angeles, at least in Los Angeles, and really throughout most of the state, uh, bail is pretty limited to more serious and violent offenders. Um, there are very few people in custody, in uh, in custody for bail purposes, for pretrial bail purposes, on lower-level felonies, and almost no one is in there for. Um, or a very small percentages in there for uh, misdemeanors. In fact, I think the last time I kind of checked this out was before COVID. And it was like 90% of people that were in custody pre trial were there for uh, felonies. Most of those were ve- violent felonies. And then COVID happened, and most DA offices, including our DA office in Los Angeles, Started releasing or asking petitioning the court to release low level offenders. So first of all, let's 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 really look at the data. The data doesn't show that all these people are in custody. It's really concentrated to the most violent felons out there. Talk to, number
0: one. And I don't want to cut you off. So keep your yeah. thoughts. But talk to us about that, because there is this belief. Um, that we're keeping our jails full of people who've committed low-level crimes and and misdemeanors like jaywalking and you know <laughs> possession of drugs and things that are not violent, and that these people are being locked up for long periods of time uh, while they're waiting for a trial, um, and that the only reason that they remain there is that they are in don't have the financial means to to get themselves out, and it becomes this this argument about uh wealth and privilege and that really uh you know it's only the the wealthy people who are able to buy themselves out of this predicament and then they're able to fight their case and they're able to buy justice whereas these other folks are not and they're kind of caught up in this system that's that's the idea around yeah. all of this so i think
1: there i think like most topics in the criminal justice debate there's a lag right and uh, what I mean by that is people are fighting issues that happened 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And they're really not talking about what's happening today in 2021. Uh, in 2021 and even, you know, back before COVID for quite some time, uh, places like Los Angeles have been very reluctant to put low level felons in custody Um So what you tend to see in who's in custody, who's in uh, are people who are they may have another case, they may be on probation or parole for another issue, and that's what keeps them in. Um, But in terms of the real numbers, most people that are in custody, either prior to conviction or post-conviction, are therefore the most violent of felonies. Um, So murder, burglary, carjacking, things of that nature, using a weapon, uh, physical violence against another person. Those types of characters are the people who are being uh, placed in custody prior to trial. When you go to state prison, when you look at those numbers, those numbers are almost entirely made up of people being convicted of you know, violence against a person. Um, So when you're
0: saying, I read about uh, a person who's languishing in jail for months pending their trial on a simple drug possession, that in fact, what might be holding them is a probation violation for a more violent crime.
1: Right. Or some other type of probation violation or uh, uh, parole holder or something else that's keeping them in custody um I mean you're not going to be kept in custody for ju- if you're just a you know possessing marijuana or meth uh, and that's it that's all you have you're generally going to be released from custody because the presumption is is that if you're committing a misdemeanor you uh, you're supposed to be released so that's that's prior to any type of bail reform whatsoever that's what the current situation is now, I think there is a problem in that the you know people who are um, you know violent there is a method for them, and that is through uh, that is through uh, bail. And so, what I think we should do is we should probably move to a model that presumes certain types of violent felonies to be detainable, just like they do in the federal system, and that. They, um, they cannot be released because uh, there is no surety that they're going to come back. And also they present a clear and present danger to the public. Uh, so those are some, I think there, there does need to be reform. I don't think the current system does acknowledge the public safety issue, because if you commit a murder, I'm not sure that posting $2 million in bail is going to make sure that you act proper and you don't start killing witnesses while you're out of, out of custody
0: talk to us a little bit about uh, folks though who say having any money or having any system tied to money is a problem because it's going to favor those with money and those who don't have money and and you say somebody charged with murder and i'll push back a little bit with for on you about that the the pivotal Word there is charged, right? Because these are people who have not been convicted. These are people who are pending their trial. So it may be very serious crimes, but at the same time, they've been convicted of nothing. And there are folks in the same position who have the money and the means and can get out and get themselves a nice lawyer and fight things. And those who don't uh, can't get out. And now they're stuck inside this system. Talk, Talk to us about people who make that argument that we need to have it tied to something other than money.
1: So, um, just in terms, just in terms of the detention issue, whether we, we detain someone or do not detain them, uh, your discussion of the presumption of, of innocence, or you alluded to that, really is something that occurs at, tr- at the trial stage. It is not a presumption that exists from the moment tr- charges are made. Uh, it only starts at the moment when the jury comes in to be selected. So. There is no presumption prior to uh, prior to trial that the person is innocent uh, until proven guilty. Uh, the courts are supposed to look at the charges and make a determination at that moment whether the uh, the person should be detained, held with bail or not. Uh, but in terms of money, I think that I think I think a lot of the critics of the bail system are correct. I do not think that money is going to be this, the thing that gets or protects the public. Money is more to make sure that the person shows up again. Right. And money in some sense also gets, you know, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, everyone gets together and puts it in the money and, and, and is interested in making sure that you come to court and you abide by the conditions. That's the theory behind it. Um, and in fact, in non-cash bail systems like the federal system, the, the family does have to sign some type of surety, saying that this person's going to come to court. I think what most critics of bail have is they they don't like the bail bondsman. They don't like the guy who's who's putting up the hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollar bond and then charges ten percent uh, um, to the uh, to the you know, to the criminal's family, usually, uh, to, to put up that money. And again, I'm not sure that is a great system either. I, I think that people who criticize bail do have some point on that. Now, sometimes the, if there's, but what do you do if the, there's no family out there willing to put up the money? I mean, I don't know how you make sure that that person returns the court. So again, I think it's a very complicated system. I'm not sure, you know, one, you know, one side is 100% right. Um, I do think there's a third way. I think that uh, actually the federal government has, has had that third way since 1986 when they started bail reform. And that's probably a better system that takes into consideration public safety, but also an issue that we want to make sure that those who should not be in custody prior to trial remain out of custody. Well, this is an issue that I'm sure we're
0: going to be hearing about for a while because proponents on both sides are very uh, vocal about it and and like you said, there's a lot of money involved. Uh, these, these bail agents are the ones who are the biggest push against reforming this because like you said, they're making a lot of money every single year. All right, uh, let's switch to a new topic. Um, this is something that I find particularly interesting, and that is the idea of uh, mandatory minimums. And it, just to illustrate uh, one case in particular uh, that we've all uh, followed here in California, but back in 2016, months after outrage over the six-month sentence that, um, for sexual assault given to former Stanford swimmer, Brock Turner, Governor Jerry Brown broadened the power of judges to treat sex crimes as rape at sentencing and agreed that the crime's punishment, and here's the point, must include time in state prison. What are your thoughts on these types of laws that take certain sentencing decisions out of the hands of
1: prosecutors and judges? Well, <clears throat> generally, I think that we're, you know, Minimum sentences are probably a bad idea um, because of the issue of discretion, and we want our judges to be able to weigh in all the factors, consider everything, and 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 um, and make the you know the right call. I think the the movement towards minimum sentencing started because the public felt that judges were just being too lenient to criminals. And there would be some, you know, there would be, you know, one or two cases that would radically change the law for everyone else. So I, you know, I I tend not to like mandatory uh, minimums because I think that they constrain, unnecessarily constrain uh, the court in terms of and the court is the best suited to make a determination about sentencing. So in general, I think I'm against it. Um, there are uh, certain types of gun laws. I think that mandatory sentencing is uh, more appropriate, uh, especially when the gun is used during a violent felony or a murder. Uh, the state did change those laws though, recently eliminating the mandatory minimum requirements that a person uh, spend in, in prison because of those gun laws.
0: I, I, I have to say that I tend to agree with you on a lot of this and I'm I'm on the other side of things, but I still agree. Um, and the, the reason for that is that the penal code addresses hundreds of different types of, of conduct, but what it can't do is address every factual scenario and every nuanced human being and every person doesn't fit, even their conduct, even when their conduct is horrible conduct, doesn't fit neatly into some of these categories. So I agree with you, Eric, that, that anytime we are taking uh, the power to make good decisions, just decisions, out of the folks who are in the courtroom, out of the hands of the people who are directly involved in those cases, and know all of the details and circumstances, I believe that can sometimes lead to bad results especially when it's being reactionary. However, that being said, what do you say to people who say, well, then how do we stop a situation like Brock Turner, where you have a crime that I think most people can agree was horrendous, and certainly the way that it played out in the media, and for that young man to receive only six months seemed like a miscarriage of justice how do you present prevent something like that from happening
1: well i i mean that's why we make certain types of crimes uh, mandatory life crimes Uh, so you know there's a there's a myriad of crimes from murder to certain types of rape that are automatically a life like there's automatically life sentence and they're just there's just a a, um, the minimum eligibility of parole will vary depending on the crime. So I I do think that the uh, that the penal code uh, and are also our, our US code uh, does take into consideration those types of offenses that are so heinous that there should be uh, a life uh, sentence. Okay, but what about? What about the in between?
0: In other words, what do you say to people who say, fine, I want to give control to judges and and prosecutors, but I don't think what that judge did in that particular case was right. Is, is that something we just need to all live with or, or is there something to be done about it?
1: I, I think it's a bad idea to change law because if one case angers you, and I just don't think it's a very responsible way of legislating. Um, so, you know, I think you just have, you know, there there may be many reasons why this judge has done it. The judge may be completely wrong, but because you're angry about one case doesn't mean you change the entire legal system. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Uh, turning now to a case that you and I have actually uh, discussed before, and 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 not so much the circumstances and facts of this case, but. How it's being charged and brought to trial, um, and and how changes in the law here in California uh, may prevent something like that. But I'm talking about Ahmad Aubrey. Um, th- three shots were fired in the confrontation that killed Ahmad Aubrey, a 25 year old black man who was chased by white men as he ran through their south- southeastern Georgia neighborhood. Uh, the authorities said that Travis McMichael. Who was with his father and a neighbor, pursued Mr. Arbery, pursuing Mr. Arbery, is the one who pulled the trigger. Yet all three of those men have been charged with murder. First of all, explain to us how that works. Under what theory are they all being charged with murder?
1: So, from what I understand, uh, in terms of, because this is a Georgia case, uh, they have retained uh, the felony murder rule and because of that they're allowed to pursue murder against all three of them. Tell us what the felony murder rule is. So what the felony murder rule is is that it, it imputes it takes uh, the intent to the intent to commit murder from an underlying crime. So if I commit the crime of robbery but in the with an accomplice but with within the course of that robbery Um, I shoot the, uh, the victim of the liquor store, both me and my accomplice are now guilty of murder. In other words, I don't have to, I would not, the prosecution would not have to prove any type of, uh, malice aforethought. They would not have to prove an intent to kill on my part to show that that person is, Uh, guilty of the robbery or that the accomplice is guilty of the robbery it's a theory of liability for murder that makes sure people are held accountable for their behavior
0: so explain that a little bit because I imagine some people are going to hear what you just said and say wait a minute the other guy the guy who just may have been the lookout the guy without a gun—he's on trial for murder now too.
1: How does that work? Well, it's it, again—it's about being account, holding people accountable. If you engage in dangerous behavior and your behavior leads to someone dying, you should be held accountable for that person's death, and that's what the law tries to do all the time. Uh, in fact, really, the felony murder rule closes off a loophole where the, where the person who's being charged says, well, that wasn't really my intent. I never intended to kill the person. I only intended to rob them at gunpoint. And if they didn't do what I wanted, yeah, sure. I was going to shoot them, but I didn't want to kill them. So it really is, you know, I mean, one of the things that is so great about the law for the most part is that, uh, Because it's developed organically through judges in terms of our system, it really has taken into consideration all these different types of actions and fact patterns and makes a rule that holds consistently that a person who commits a crime should be accountable for the crime and for the results that uh, that they have created. And so that's what the felony murder rule does. That's why these other two individuals did not pull the trigger, um, are also being charged under the felony murder rule, because they all should be held accountable for the death of this young man because they were all involved. And if it wasn't for one of them acting or three of them acting, the other guy wouldn't be able to complete the mission that he was trying to have, which was – to stop this young bu- young man through violence
0: here's how it plays out right you hop in a truck with a man who's got a rifle and you're driving down the road chasing somebody who's running jogging in the neighborhood you can't all of a sudden say i had no idea that these actions could lead to violence and this man's death that's not that's not something that the law is going to let you hide behind is, is that well, am I am I explaining that well and and then and then tell us what's happening in yeah. California
1: so so yeah that's and that's the purpose of it right the purpose is to make sure that you're how that the person who gets involved is held accountable for what they've done you know you can envision what's going to happen down the road if you have a gun or your friend has a gun and they're chasing after someone and that person ends up getting killed because your friend because you're helping your friend uh that is a that is something that is very easy to look to see what the future is going to result in right so right. again about accountability um so that's that's the purpose of the law
0: that's the way it used to work in california how have things changed right
1: so and this is you know this is the problem with a lot of how progressive uh you know, progressives think in terms of criminal justice issues, and this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier in terms of like making mand- mandatory minimums because you're unhappy with something that happened. Uh, basically, the, the the California legislature, mainly led through progressive legislators, uh, eliminated that type of use of the felony murder rule. Uh, in other words, now you could have to be the actual guy with the gun committing the felony murder to be held accountable. You can't be an accomplice unless certain types of really, really extreme behavior occurs. Um, so they got rid of the felony murder rule. They got rid of the natural probable consequence murder rule. Um, in other words, if, uh, if this case had happened in California. Probably only one of the three would be charged with murder and the other two would not be charged with murder. In fact, the other two would probably be charged with maybe at the most false imprisonment. So it's it's a it's a you know, it's a it's a good example of why, uh, you know, why, you know, seemingly good intentions, why trying to change the law. You know all of a sudden you know the, these legislators come in they change the law and there's all these unintended consequences and so those people those two individuals would not be held accountable in california because of because of that change uh by the legislature
0: and i can only imagine what the reaction to that would be if this type of a crime had occurred in california and only one of them was being held accountable
1: well i i, I can i can predict what would happen the district attorney would be put uh, would be blamed for not filing charges and no one would understand that actually it's, you know, a woman by the name of Senator Skinner from from Berkeley who really is at fault because she eliminated, you know, a doctor that has list has, has been developed by the judiciary for over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, because she didn't like what it did in a few cases. Okay. Now that we
0: got you worked up, I got a good question for you. Um, In November of last year, George Gascombe, former DA of San Francisco, beat the two-term current District Attorney of Los Angeles at the time, Jackie Lacey, in a very contentious campaign. And the reaction from prosecutors within that office, your office, has been, um, let's put it, less than enthusiastic. Earlier this year in an interview, you said the following you can't just use the law to implement your personal worldview of what society should look like. The idea of one man coming in and saying you all are wrong. And this is what the law should be is counter to what our entire American system of justice is all about. It is the antithesis of the rule of all law. Tell us what you meant by that.
1: Well, so again, California has a penal code. It has been developed, uh, for quite you know quite some time through the legislature, we also have uh, a, a tremendous amount of decisional authority that has been developed over time through through judges, mainly appellate court judges. And then the voters have also voted on law. Uh, they have passed certain types of law. They have passed about how we how we treat murderers. They have passed laws about gang crimes and. George Gascon is one man and he did win the election, but he didn't win the election with a mandate to completely overturn all of that, all of those laws, historical precedent and everything else. Um, He got elected to enforce the, the laws of the state of California in Los Angeles County. And basically what he did was he came into office and he said, we're going to bring in a bunch of public defenders. We're going to redo the policy and we're just going to ignore Huge swaths of law, uh, one law in particular that he did, that he completely decided that he was going to ignore is something that is mandatory by the uh, by state law, which is the strike law. Prosecutors are required to plead and prove up uh, strikes. I, I think, you know, again, I think one of the problems that people have when they're thinking about the law and criminal justice reform is oh, There's always this lag. And this, in this lag, is like thirty about thirty years. People are thinking like the, the the strike law is putting people in prison for stealing a piece of pizza or a pair of jeans. The law has been changed; it's been reformed, and it really only affects it only affects the most serious and violent criminals. That's what the strike law currently uh, deals with. So. George Gascon basically said, well, I don't care what the strike law says. I'm going to completely ignore it. Um, I'm not going to enforce it. It tells me that I'm supposed to enforce it. But, you know, I'm, I'm the DA. I can do whatever I want. So he decided that he's going to be the executive branch. He's, and He's going to be the judiciary and the legislature all in one. And, you know, frankly, our system of government doesn't do that. There's there is a division of of power in this country. The executive has one branch of government, but the judiciary is another part. And the and the legislature is the other part. So I, I think one of the problems that we had and one of the reasons we actually had to sue Mr. Gascoigne and ask a court for an injunction against him is that. He, he is one branch of government, he's the executive branch. But the executive branch can't ignore what the judiciary and what the legislative branch of government has done. His job is to enforce the laws as they have been created and interpreted by those other two branches of government. You know, it was very telling that one of the things he said when he first came to power is he said uh, something about the, the DAs swear a loyalty oath to me. And we don't, we don't swear a loyalty oath to one man. Kind of the antithesis of American government, the idea that you swear allegiance to a leader. Um, I mean, I know other societies do that. And I know other forms of government do that, but we don't do that. We never have. We swear a loyalty oath to the constitution, to uphold the laws of the state and the federal government. But we don't hold we don't swear a loyalty oath to one individual and that one individual can't just ignore and flout the law. And that was that's what was happening when when uh, Mr. Gascoigne first took power is that he thought, well, I have seized power. Now I can just take it and do whatever I want with it. And that's that's not how our system of government functions. And I know that your union in particular has been
0: kind of on the, 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 the trailblazing edge of trying to push back on some of these policies. Can you tell us the latest of what's happening?
1: Well, I mean, right now we still have, we have a lawsuit uh, with him, and that's, the, that's an injunction. The um, court issued the injunction. It basically said that the DA cannot um, ignore the strike law. Also, the other thing that said was you can't just abandon certain type, of, certain prosecutions that you've already charged. Um, there, there's a penal code section called 1385 in California, and that's allows the court or the prosecutor to, to dismiss something in the interest of justice. That ter- that's a term of art that was developed over the years by by the courts, and what it means is that you have to do it for some case specific reason in other words there may be some factors of mitigation like you know this is a person without a record uh or you know they there are other underlying circumstances to explain the reason why the crime was committed then you can dismiss certain portions of the crime or you can even dismiss it entirely um what the law has always said, though, is that the, that the interest of justice doesn't mean just that you don't like what the law is. Um, in other words, it can't be some personal animus against that particular law. And so the court felt that, that Mr. Gascon's directives uh, uh, abused that language of the interest of justice by saying He just didn't like what it was. Understood. All right. Well, I know there's a
0: current uh, effort to have him recalled, and I'm sure this is something that we're going to be hearing a lot about, uh, not just here in local news in Los Angeles, but it's something that uh, has uh, gained some attention nationwide because of how drastically he has been trying to reform things here in, in the L.A. County area. All right. Let's now turn to a couple of kind of softball questions here to, to end things. First one, uh, someone asked, what's one well-known case that had national news coverage that you would have handled differently, either from both the prosecution or defense side of things.
1: I mean, the, the, the most obvious case that pops into my mind is the, is the OJ Simpson case. Um, it seemed like the prosecution complicated the case, uh, unnecessarily uh, i think you know the classic example and this kind of just shows where it went from there on was at the very beginning of of the uh of the trial and opening statements chris darden gives this opening statement and i think the first thing he said something it was like this is a really hard case and hopefully yeah. not the way to set the table <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, and and they really just complicated the hell out of that case. Uh, I mean, this was a pretty this was a domestic violence murder, right? I mean, you had a history of domestic violence that uh, O.J. Simpson had engaged in. You had, um, you know, like this unchecked jealousy that goes in. There's no other people in the world who wanted these two individuals murdered, especially Nicole Brown murdered. Um, And then you had the trail of blood. And instead, it became, you know, this just this monster of case where every little detail gets put in. And I I just don't think that that's how you should prosecute a case. It should it should should not lasted, you know, more than a month or two. you know i realized that there were some unique things that were happening in that case most particular was the uh it was the fir- you know the first major case kind of used dna uh and, and jurors were not comfortable and with dna but uh you know that that seems to be a case that was overtried rather than than uh, nicely packaged and given to the the jury oh,
0: it was also one of the cases uh, still to this day, had had more media attention on it. And I think it just it took a life of its own. You, th- you saw things that took place in that case with not just the prosecution, but the defense, even the judge allowing or doing things that had never been done before because it just had become this thing bigger than itself. Um, but I'll tell you one thing I would have done differently is uh not had asked him to try on that dro- glove that's for sure
1: <laughs> well that i mean that the yeah and that that's the obvious thing and you know and but that kind of you know how it culminated to that was also just something that it, it's because the case kind of took on a life of its own and all of a sudden the case doesn't become between you know what the evidence you know trials should be about the evidence about truth seeking and minimization of risk. And what that trial became was a battle of egos. And in that particular moment, it was, you know, Chris Darden being punked, uh, you know, (laughs) kind of getting, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Cochran kind of forcing him to, to ask that question. And when that, when you start, you know, just, following the ball that the defense lawyer throws at you and running around in circles you know to to fight their arguments you've you've kind of lost your case yeah yeah as a prosecutor yeah you guys on the other hand you guys want that right oh, i want i want
0: there to, i want there to be as many balls flying around as possible you guys chasing them all over the courtroom of course yeah. right. all right um last one uh this question is tell us about your first trial and how it went. And, and I'll go first if I can. Okay. Uh, my first trial, I was a brand new DA right out of training. And I actually started the trial day one of, of being at my new assignment. And I was very excited about it. I had thought I had really good evidence, I thought it, I had it all packaged and put together nicely. <clears throat> and then the whole thing completely fell apart on the stand. Uh, my victim, barely even showed up and i was too naive at the time to realize how bad my case had gotten and um i remember we did closing arguments i argued the hell out of it and before the jury had by the time they had gone back in the room before they had had the time to even sit down i think we had a question and the question was if we don't have a verdict today, do we have to come back tomorrow? <laughs> and when the judge told them that, yes, you do. The next question was, we have a verdict. And it was not guilty. And it was the fastest one I'd ever seen in my life.
1: <laughs> so my case, my first case was kind of similar. Um, it was it was a not guilty. Um, it was. um It was my first day on the job i literally arrived at my assignment and my boss is like here's your file go try our case and it was um it was like it was a simple assault and what happened from a parking dispute this (laughs) these (laughs) two people get this massive parking dispute and i will never forget my Victim is asked to identify anyone in court who is involved in the the assault that day. And my victim turns and looks at everyone. She starts at the juror with the juror. (laughs) But it gives every juror this like really intense stare. Like maybe it's you. And then she goes through every juror. She then goes p- past the defendant to his lawyer, starts looking at his lawyer, maybe it was you. And then she goes to me and she's like, looks at me, maybe it's me. And then she turns to the court reporter, maybe it's the court reporter, and looks at the judge and gives that judge this really intense scare, uh, stare. And then finally comes around and says, no, I don't see him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> The, the one good I'll say about both of our examples is at least it got better since then.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, and, you know, it was funny too, because even, you know, it was my first trial, right? So like, just like you said, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm, I just experienced a disaster, right? Like, and I'm thinking, oh, I can win this. <laughs> I love it. Good confidence.
0: All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Where
1: can people find out more about you? Uh, well, they can uh, check out the uh, L.A. A.D.A. website, um, go to laadda.com dot com. That will have a lot of articles uh, that we uh, that we've written. I've I've written pretty extensively on California criminal justice issues. And most of my articles are there. So that's uh, that's probably the best way.
0: Okay, fantastic. And I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter Esq. And we want to hear from you. If you have questions or comments we'd like you'd like us to address, please tweet your questions with the hashtag TCDsidebar. Sidebar, and we will talk about it next time. In the meantime, you can find our Sidebar pot episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us at the Sidebar.